good morning, everybody. My name is Kurt Heineman. I'm associate Connections Pastor at Trinity. And good morning again. This, this month, we're beginning a new sermon series on the book of Isaiah, and then the next month, Philippians, as Ian said earlier. And just to set the stage for this sermon series, I wanted to share a little bit of our history as a church. A few years before I got here, I came here two and a half years ago. And right before I came here, the church hired a consultant to help us identify and then to think strategically about how we may move the trajectory of where we were going. And in that process, we identified three things that we wanted to do moving forward. One was to do youth ministry in a new way. The second was to do communications better with this church. And the third was to try to identify a common language for what growing as a Christian would look like. What did it look like to have maturity as a Christian? And the result of that third part, uh, we ended up calling the common language or the spiritual goal. And a group of people over the course of a year or longer with a bunch of leaders in this church created this document that you've seen us talk about every once in a while. It's called the spiritual goal document. Now, something you may not know about this document is that Pastor Mary and I use this document and the four areas of learning uh, that associate with growing to knowing Jesus so intimately we become like him. We use these four areas of learning to create our sermon series. So from July to the end of this year, we're focused on this blue page right here. It's called Show and Tell. So last month, we had sharing our stories of faith as one of our sermon series. Then this month is on righting the wrongs of injustice. And then at the end of the year, we have a sermon series on a new heaven and a new earth. So there's just a little bit of that background for you all so you know kind of where we are and where we are going. Today, we're looking at the book of Isaiah and specifically chapter 6 as a window into what it was that the people of God were facing in that time and the issues that they were having. So let us read the text now. Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes, 
so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the gift of God's word. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't have a cable subscription for my TV at home. I'm what some people call those millennial cord cutters. I watch my TV on Netflix, on Hulu, on Amazon Prime. Don't tell anybody, sometimes I borrow passwords from other people to watch TV. For the most part, I get my media electronically. I read news online. I have websites that I go to. I have apps. And one of my favorite news sources is to go to Twitter, actually. For those of you who don't tweet, and I have a Twitter account, but I don't tweet that much. I don't send out tweets, but I like to read tweets. There's two different ways that you can access information on Twitter for those of you who don't use it or don't know much about it. One is that you can follow people. You can follow news organizations. You can follow churches, even, that have Twitter pages. And if you follow them, all of that information shows up on one page. Then on a second section, there's this space called Moments. And this is the part that's kind of somewhat confusing to me, but I think they have an algorithm that mixes things I search for, people I follow, and other information that is trending worldwide. And it all kinds of shows up in this column or this category on Twitter. So I like to go to that moment section because sometimes they're pretty smart. I think that algorithm's got it right. They know what I want to read. Um, and that's fascinating. I don't know how they do this, but it's fascinating. But the other piece is there is trending things happening in the world. And if millions of other people are reading something or watching something, it shows up there. Last year in July, I was early in the month, and I remember waking up doing my normal morning routine, having some coffee, and I went to Twitter, my Twitter feed, and I saw under there on that moments page um, something that was trending worldwide. It was uh, the story of Alton Sterling, who was a man who... Uh, was in a police brutality situation in Baton Rouge. And so I clicked on it, I looked at it because it had just happened hours earlier than that. And I won't describe all of it, but it was a graphic situation and it was unedited, posted on Twitter. So you saw the whole thing. And I remembered watching that and just erupting in tears sitting on my couch that morning, just, just sobbing. I don't, I don't cry much, but there was something so graphic about it. It was so heartbreaking. In a day or two afterwards, I met a colleague and a good friend now, Pastor Kamal Hassan. Kamal preached here last year, and he and I had set up to have lunch so that we could talk about his guest preaching and what his seminar was going to be about. I like to do this when I meet with pastors before they come so that we're all on the same page. He and I were having lunch together, 
And I was telling Kamal about what I had just seen and what was going on. And Kamal is a pastor of a, a Presbyterian church in Richmond, California. It's a, it's a mostly black church, which are very rare, actually, to have a mostly black Presbyterian church. It's very uncommon. So I'm talking to Kamal about this and what's going on. And as I share about the story of crying, looking at Twitter, I think I started to tear up in that moment, too. And when I was telling him about it, and he, he stopped, he looked at me, and he said to me, he said, Kurt, your tears aren't enough. Your tears aren't enough. My tears aren't enough. I'll never forget that moment in my life, I think. I'll never forget it. In the past year, I've really tried my best in my spiritual journey to mature as a Christian and learning about that moment and what Kamal had to say to me about how my tears were not enough. Kamal and I had more conversation after that, and his preaching was really helpful for me too. He gave me some suggestions, but he also handed me some books to read. I don't think he knew that I love reading books, but that's what ended up happening. One of those books was about liberation theology. Liberation theology is the result of the work of theologians who were doing theology from a place of oppression. It started in the 1960s in Peru by this guy named Gustavo Gutierrez. He was a Catholic priest, and the people in that place were being oppressed by the government. And so he was trying to say, what does Jesus have to say to us in this space? What is God saying to us in Peru right now? How is God not just rescuing our souls, but our very bodies from what's happening in this place? As I learned more about liberation theology, I found it to be an important part of a balanced vision of thinking about what it means to be a Christian. I have in my mind this vision of Christianity as kind of like being a mobile. You know, the mobiles that hang over babies' cribs? Sometimes if there's too many things on one side, it kind of, it's like this and it tips one direction. And maybe if it's on this side, then it tips the other direction. And I've found in the last year that some of these perspectives really help me give a balanced sense of what it means to be a Christian. Yet talking about justice and issues of injustice and Jesus together is really hard. It's really hard. As I learned more about this, I've discovered that it's hard to talk about issues of justice, and I want to just try to open us up as we begin this sermon series on issues of injustice by at least talking about three reasons I think it's hard for us. It's hard for us. I know we say this sometimes, and it seems like every generation has always said this, but it seems like we live in a politically divisive time, doesn't it? It just seems like we live in a divided time in American history. I saw this poll in the Washington Post the other day, online, on my Amazon Kindle, and it said that if you were a person who identified as a Republican, more than 80% of those people are in favor of the executive branch right now. They're, they have a high favorability rating what's going on. But if you're a person who identifies as more liberal or Democrat, then only 10% of people have a favorability rating. Danny, you can throw the little graphic up there if you can see it. It's kind of hard to see, but this is the most divided the time in American history has ever had in the last 50 or 60 years. Um, and so I just think there's something... If we speak about an issue of injustice, if we speak about politics, it's hard almost to not be divisive anymore at all. It's hard to just 
enter into a space of talking about politics that doesn't feel divisive. And I think that presents challenges for us if we want to talk about issues of injustice, because then it's going to feel partisan. And if it's partisan, then how do we include one another with Jesus at the center of what it is that we're talking about? So the political talk is divided right now. It's hard. Another thing that's hard, my second thought, is that we don't always have a clear definition of what justice is. What is justice? Sometimes we hear the word justice and we think, is Pastor Kurt just talking about the criminal justice system? Is that what he's talking about or is it something else? The simple and most basic image that I can use to communicate about biblical justice is what Kamal said last year, and I'm borrowing from Kamal Hassan again. He had this image where he said, in the biblical text, the word for justice means that there are things that were once right side up that have been turned upside down. Upside down. And the Christian perspective of humanity is that all humans are image bearers of God. And as image bearers, they have dignity, they have value, they have meaning. And that worthiness of the human It can never be taken away, but people can be treated in such a way that that's not honored or respected. And if that's the case, then things are upside down. They're out of whack, so to speak. Things are upside down, and they need to be turned right side up. And this perspective of what is right side up is distinctly Christian. It comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. So it may not be just about the criminal justice system, but it may have something to say about it. This is why we partner with different organizations in our community that work with issues of injustice around housing and hunger, like Street Life Ministries or Siena Youth Center and St. Francis Center. Three, here's my last piece about why I think it's just hard to talk about issues of injustice. We lack a common memory when it comes to injustice issues within the broader church, within the broader church. I mean the Western church. For the most part, the Western church has largely emphasized Christian journey to be about salvation and sanctification, about our souls being saved and our persons becoming more like Jesus. And that's, and that's, that's true. That's a piece of it. But to some extent, that feels a bit, you know, like the mobile, like we've shifted too much on one side. Let me give you one example of why I think it's been a bit out of balance. And this may be the part where you want to fall asleep for a second because (laughs) anytime a pastor mentions the word Greek in New Testament, there's this, and I know we have a former associate pastor that used to speak all the time of the Greek in New Testament and people would fall asleep. But hang out with me. Hang out with me for just a second, okay? Hang out with me. The New Testament was written in Greek because it was the common language of the ancient Near East. Everybody knew Greek, everybody wrote Greek. Well, not everybody wrote it, but... Most people knew Greek. It was the common tongue. It was what everybody knew. The Greek word for justice is dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. It shows up in the New Testament 300 times. 300 times. That's a lot. Trust me. I've read a lot of the New Testament in Greek. That's a lot of times. There's a long history here, and I could give a long lecture, but just trust me in that one of the problems of the New Testament translations is that in classic Greek literature, dikaiosune was always translated justice, always. If you read Plato's Republic, dikaiosune, justice, every time. In the New Testament, though, when it was translated into English, 
Some people translated it into righteousness, and some people translated it into justice. And that gave the sense or the feeling of righteousness being about what it meant to be morally good, morally upright, to be the right person, rather than to pay attention to justice. Here, let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, this is the Beatitudes right before the Sermon on the Mount. This is what the verse reads. The verse reads, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word righteousness is the word dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. Wouldn't it make perhaps more sense to say that blessed are those who are persecuted for turning things right side up, for turning things right side up, for seeking justice? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's people who seek things to be turned right side up to come along hurting people. Those are the people who end up being persecuted. Not often is it the morally righteous person. So I use this as an example that it's not, I'm not saying this about us, but I'm saying it about the broader us. Perhaps the bigger church has been unbalanced to some extent for a long time, that we've opted to translate this word into righteousness rather than into justice. That's why I think Isaiah is really helpful for us, because Isaiah presents for us a biblical faith, and it gives us a balanced look of this tension on the one hand of the outward perspective, to care for, to seek out justice, to care for the widow, to care for the oppressed, to care for the orphan. But then on the other hand, to also to take care of the interior spirituality, the peace that needs to be addressed within us, the prayer life, what it means to fast, to grow closer in relationship with God. Isaiah holds this balance really, 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 really well. And yet, Isaiah, Isaiah lived in a challenging time in the history of Israel. After generations of stability with the kings, they created a wealth after these generations of kingship but over time, they, they forgot the great call. If you read Isaiah chapter 1, it's about what went wrong in society. And mostly what went wrong was that they forgot the call to take care of the oppressed, the widow, and the orphan, the most vulnerable of their society. This is what Isaiah 1 talks about. And because of this, that they forget this, God sends a prophet. God picks Isaiah to send him to tell them to remember to do this. But it's a hard word. It's a hard word. Listen again to what God sends Isaiah to tell the people to. Keep listening. Do not comprehend. Keep looking. Do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. That's a, that's a tough word that the prophet Isaiah is sent to say. But he says this because they have not treated the vulnerable justly. Things were upside down in that community. And now God, in a strange way through Babylon, is going to turn things right side up. But we don't see it just yet. But we will see it. We will see it. What God has in mind for turning things right side up. Just as Isaiah is sent to be a prophet for God in that time, we too are sent, we are sent to seek out justice in ours as part of a balanced vision of Christian 
faith. I've been trying to think, what does this look like for us, Christian justice? And I want to give you an analogy. I want to give you an analogy. As pastor, one of the most hard things I do is to do pastoral care visits with people while they're dying. It's one of the hardest things that I do. It's hard because when we've known someone, we've done things with them, we've partnered with them in life, we've prayed with them, we've talked with them, we've loved them, oftentimes in those days leading up to the end, things change. Things change dramatically. The person that we know, that we've seen, the body changes. Sometimes they can't speak the way they used to speak. Sometimes they can't even acknowledge our presence anymore. And things change dramatically in those last few weeks. And so it's hard. If I'm honest, the human part of going to spend time with people while they're dying is not easy. It's not easy. And yet, as a pastor, God's put it on my heart to do this ministry. And I pray about it every time I go. I I pray for God. I pray to God for boldness, for a sense of grace, for a sense of um, energy to be present in that moment. And then when I'm there and I'm visiting with somebody, I, I just try to listen to how the Spirit of God wants to move me in that time. If it means to say a good word to them, to say a prayer, maybe to read a psalm with them, read Psalm 139. God, you have searched me and known me. You know my going out and my coming in. Or maybe it'd be better to read something from the Gospel of John. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled as I might just hold their hand pastoral care visits are hard, and yet I think the call for me as pastor is to go there with boldness and just to be present in that moment. And perhaps let's say in this analogy that if this person is dying not for a natural reason, but perhaps it could be a young person who has cancer. It feels unjust that this person should have cancer and should be dying from it. Or it could be about a story like what I shared at the beginning of this sermon then pastoral care may mean that I go to seek out the benefit of others who face similar kinds of situations after that visit. That I may want to come alongside other people who are struggling with that similar kind of thing. I once had a friend tell me that pastoral ministry is entering into the mess of people's lives in order to look for and proclaim the signs of what God is doing to show up and redeem things. Let me say that one more time. Pastoral ministry is entering into the mess of people's lives in order to look for and proclaim the signs of what God is doing to show up and redeem things. Ultimately, I think that's what Isaiah is doing. He's showing up to the people of God in that time in Israel, into the mess of what's going on, and he's going to proclaim the signs of what God is doing and showing up and redeeming. But it doesn't look the way that they expect they get exiled. They have to go to Babylon. And the tent becomes even smaller than that and smaller than that. And yet God is going to show up and redeem. I think that's also true of what I do in a pastoral care visits. But I also think that's true of our call as Christians in this balanced perspective of faith to seek out justice, to show up, to look, to proclaim signs of what it is that God is doing in this space or in that space. I say seek justice because ultimately we're not the ones to fix things. And this is a critical component of this. 
Jesus is the one who is at work fixing. Jesus is at the one at work who is turning things right side up. God is showing up and redeeming things. And yet, Jesus sends us to partner with Jesus in this work and to be present and to acknowledge the upside-downness of the world. Jesus sends us to seek justice, much like the prophet Isaiah. Given all of these things about what it means to make, why it's so hard to talk about some of these issues, why it's so hard to talk about these issues, what would it look like for us to find ways to talk, to look out for one another, to care for one another, to honor each other's dignity in life? And how is this connected to following Jesus? I must say, though, that this church, and we say that we are a community, we're community servants inspired by Jesus. This is something we do well already. We partner with mission partners locally, and they help us notice and identify that there's justice issues going on right around us. Um, Last week, we talked and heard from Rafael Avendano in Siena Youth Center and St. Francis Center. They're facing real housing issues of injustice, and we partner with them. We're working with them to see how things are turning right side up. And I must say, as I mentioned the hard parts at the beginning, even though the year has been difficult in some ways, I've had some of the best conversations of my whole life with people about faith and politics. Some of the most honest conversations, some of the most just real conversations, and we've held each other in Christian community and fellowship in the midst of those conversations. And that's amazing to me. I've seen that already lived out here in this place, that Jesus really does have the power to unite us in faith as we hold on to the distinctiveness of each one of us. So perhaps the prayer is that we can continue to live this out together, to discover what it means to right the wrongs of injustice as we notice what it is that Jesus is doing in our midst and as we partner with him in his love and his compassion and his justice. So may we continue to learn about our call as we pay attention to the work of God in our midst of the, process, of the prophet Isaiah's life. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for you. We thank you for the prophet Isaiah, for his life and his witness to the people of God. We know, God, that you have called us to a ministry of being a prophet as well. All of us, God. And so we pray that your spirit would go in front of us and lead us to where you want us to be. And so send us out, God. Send us out to be part of the ministry of love, compassion, and justice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.